Section 27. The Mutineers. From the Seahawk. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. THE SEAHAWK by Raphael Sabatini Section 27, Chapter 19 THE MUTINEERS Later that morning, some time after the Galese had awakened to life and such languid movement as might be looked for in a waiting crew, Sakar el-Bar went to visit Rosamond. He found her brightened and refreshed by sleep, and he brought her reassuring messages that all was well, encouraging her with hopes which himself he was very far from entertaining. If her reception of him was not expressedly friendly, neither was it unfriendly. She listened to the hopes he expressed of yet affecting her safe deliverance, and, whilst she had no thanks to offer him for the efforts he was to exert on her behalf, accepting them as her absolute due, as the inadequate liquidation of the debt that lay between them. Yet there was now none of that aloofness amounting almost to scorn, which hitherto had marked her bearing towards him. He came again some hours later in the afternoon, by when his Nubians were once more at their post. He had no news to bring her beyond the fact that their sentinel on the heights reported a sail to westward, beating up towards the island before the very gentle breeze that was blowing. But the Argosy they awaited was not yet in sight, and he confessed that certain proposals which he had made to Assad for landing her in France had been rejected. Still, she need have no fear, he added, promptly, seeing the sudden alarm that quickened in her eyes. A way would present itself. He was watching, and would miss no chance. And if no chance should offer, she asked him, why then I will make one, he answered, lightly almost. I have been making them all my life, and it would be odd if I should have lost the trick of it on my life's most important occasion. This mention of his life led to a question from her. How did you contrive the chance that has made you what you are? I mean, she added quickly, as if fearing that the purport of that question might be misunderstood, that has enabled you to become a corsair captain. "'Tis a long story, that," he said. "'I should weary you in the telling of it.' "'No,' she replied, and shook her head, her clear eyes solemnly meeting his clouded glance. "'You would not weary one. Chances may be few in which to learn it.' "'And you would learn it?' quoth he, and added, "'That you may judge me?' "'Perhaps.' she said, and her eyes fell. 
With bowed head he paced the length of the small chamber, and back again. His desire was to do her will in this, which is natural enough, for if it is true that who knows all must perforce forgive all, never could it have been truer than in the case of Sir Oliver Tressilian. So he told his tale. Pacing there, he related it at length, from the days when he had toiled at an oar on one of the galleys of Spain, down to that hour in which, aboard the Spanish vessel taken under Cape Spartel, he had determined, upon that voyage to England, to present his reckoning to his brother. He told his story simply, and without too great a wealth of detail, yet he omitted nothing of all that had gone to place him where he stood. And she, listening, was so profoundly moved that, at one moment, her eyes glistened with tears, which she sought vainly to repress. Yet he, pacing there, absorbed, with head bowed and eyes that never once strayed in her direction, saw none of this. And so, he said, when at last that odd narrative had reached its end, you know what the forces were that drove me. Another stronger than myself might have resisted and preferred to suffer death, but I was not strong enough. Or perhaps it is that stronger than myself was my desire to punish, to vent the bitter hatred into which my erstwhile love for Lionel was turned. And for me too, as you have told me, she added. Not so, he corrected her. I hated you for your unfaith, and most of all, for your having burnt unread the letter I sent you by the hand of Pitt. In doing that you contributed to the wrongs I was enduring. You destroyed my one chance of establishing my innocence and seeking rehabilitation. You doomed me for life to the ways which I was treading. But I did not then know what ample cause you had to believe me what I seemed. I did not know that it was believed I had fled. Therefore, I forgive you freely, a deed for which, at one time, I confess that I hated you, and which spurred me to bear you off when I found you under my hand that night at Aranach, when I went for Lionel. You mean that it was no part of your intent to have done so? she asked him. To carry you off together with him? he asked. I swear to God I had not premeditated that. Indeed, it was done because not premeditated, for had I considered it, I do think I should have been proof against any such temptation. It assailed me suddenly when I beheld you there with Lionel, and I succumbed to it. Knowing what I now know, I am punished enough, I think." 
I think I can understand, she murmured gently, as if to comfort him, for quick pain had trembled in his voice. He tossed back his turbaned head. To understand is something, said he. It is halfway, at least, to forgiveness. But ere forgiveness can be accepted, the evil done must be atoned for to the full. If possible, said she, it must be made possible, he answered her with heat, and on that he checked abruptly, arrested by a sound of shouting from without. He recognized the voice of Laroque, who at dawn had returned to his sentinel's post on the summit of the headland, relieving the man who had replaced him there during the night. "'My lord! my lord!' was the cry, in a voice shaken by excitement, and succeeded by a shouting chorus from the crew. Sakar el-Bar turned swiftly to the entrance, whisked aside the curtain, and stepped out upon the poop. Laroque was in the very act of clambering over the bulwarks amidships, towards the waist-deck, where Assad awaited him in company with Marzak, and the trusty Biscayne. The prow, on which the corsairs had lounged at ease since yesterday, was now a seething mob of inquisitive, babbling men, crowding to the rail and even down the gangway in their eagerness to learn what news it was that brought the sentinel aboard in such an excited haste. From where he stood, Sakhar el-Bar heard Laroque's loud announcement. The ship I sighted at dawn, my lord. Well, barked Assad, she is here in the bay beneath that headland. She has just dropped anchor. No need for alarm in that, replied the Basha at once, since she has anchored. There, it is plain that she has no suspicion of our presence. What manner of ship is she? A tall galleon of twenty guns flying the flag of England. Of England? cried Assad in surprise. She'll need be a stout vessel to hazard herself in Spanish waters. Sakar el-Bar advanced to the rail. Does she display no further device? he asked. Laroque turned at the question. I, he answered, a narrow blue pennant on her mizzen is charged with a white bird, a stork, I think. A stork, echoed Sakar el-Bar thoughtfully. He could call to mind no such English blazon, nor did it seem to him that it could possibly be English. He caught the sound of a quickly indrawn breath behind him. He turned to find Rosamond, standing in the entrance, no more than half concealed by the curtain. Her face showed white and eager. Her eyes were wide. What is't? he asked her shortly. A stork, he thinks, she said, 
as though that were answer enough. "'If faith an unlikely bird,' he commented, "'the fellow is mistook. "'Yet not by much, Sir Oliver.' "'How? "'Not by much?' "'Intrigued by something in her tone and glance, "'he stepped quickly up to her, "'whilst below the chatter of voices increased. "'That which he takes to be a stork is a heron, "'a white heron, and white is argent in heraldry, is it not? "'It is. What then? "'Do you not see? "'That ship will be the silver heron.' He looked at her. Slife, said he, I reck little whether it be the silver heron or the golden grasshopper. What odds? It is Sir John's ship, Sir John Killigrew's, she explained. She was all but ready to sail when, when you came to Aranak. He was for the Indies. Instead, don't you see, out of love for me, he will have come after me upon a forlorn hope of overtaking you ere you could make Barbary. God's light, said Sakar Bar, and fell to musing. Then he raised his head and laughed. <laughs> He's some days late for that. But the jest evoked no response from her. She continued to stare at him with those eager yet timid eyes. And yet, he continued, he comes opportunely enough, if the breeze that has fetched him is faint, yet surely it blows from heaven. Were it, she paused, faltering a moment, then, were it possible to communicate with him? She asked, yet with hesitation. Possible? I he answered, though we must needs devise the means, and that will prove none so easy. And you would do it? she inquired, an undercurrent of wonder in her question, some recollection of it in her face. Why, readily, he answered, since no other way presents itself. No doubt twill cost some lives, he added, but then, and he shrugged to complete the sentence. Ah, no, no, not at that price, she protested. And how was he to know that all the price she was thinking of was his own life, which she conceived would be forfeited if the assistance of the silver heron were invoked? Before he could return her any answer, his attention was diverted. A sullen, threatening note had crept into the babble of the crew, and suddenly one or two voices were raised to demand insistently that Assad should put to sea at once and remove his vessel from a neighborhood become so dangerous. Now the fault of this was Marzak's. His was the voice that first had uttered that timid suggestion, and the infection of his panic had spread instantly through the corsair ranks. Assad, drawn to the full of his gaunt height, turned upon them the eyes that had quelled greater clamours, 
and raised the voice which in its day had hurled a hundred men straight into the jaws of death without a protest. Silence! he commanded. I am your lord, and need no counsellors save Allah. When I consider the time come, I will give the word to row, but not before. Back to your quarters, then, and peace. He disdained to argue with them, to show them what sound reasons there were for remaining in this secret cove, and against putting forth into the open. Enough for them that such should be his will, not for them to question his wisdom and his decisions. But Asad el-Din had lain overlong in Algiers, whilst his fleets under Sakhar el-Bar and Biscayne had scoured the inland sea. The men were no longer accustomed to the goad of his voice, their confidence in his judgment was not built upon the sound basis of past experience. Never yet had he led into battle the men of this crew, and brought them forth again in triumph, and enriched by spoil. So now they set their own judgment against his. To them it seemed a recklessness, as indeed Marsak had suggested to linger here, and his mere announcement of his purpose was far from sufficient to dispel their doubts. The murmurs swelled, not to be overborne by his fierce presence and scowling brow, and suddenly one of the renegades, secretly prompted by the wily Vigitello, raised a shout for the captain whom they knew and trusted. Sakar el bar Sakar el bar thou'lt not leave us penned in this cove to perish like rats. It was as a spark to a train of powder. A score of voices instantly took up the cry. Hands were flung out towards Sakar el bar where he stood above them and in full view of all, leaning impassive and stern upon the poop-rail, whilst his agile mind weighed the opportunity thus thrust upon him, and considered what profit was to be extracted from it. Assad fell back a pace in his profound mortification. His face was livid, his eyes blared furiously, his hand flew to the bejeweled hilt of his scimitar, yet forbore from drawing the blade. Instead, he let loose upon Marzak the venom kindled in his soul by this evidence of how shrunken was his authority. Thou fool! he snarled. Look on thy craven's work. See what a devil thou hast raised with thy woman's counsels. Thou to command a galley, thou to become a fighter upon the seas, I would that Allah had stricken me dead ere I begat me such a son as thou. 
Marzak recoiled before the fury of words that he feared might be followed by yet worse. He dared make no answer, offer no excuse. In that moment he scarcely dared breathe. Meanwhile, Rosamond, in her eagerness, had advanced until she stood at Sakr el Bar's elbow. "'God is helping us,' she said in a voice of fervent gratitude. "'This is your opportunity. The men will obey you.' He looked at her, and smiled faintly upon her eagerness. "'Ay, mistress, they will obey me,' he said. But in the few moments that were sped, he had taken his resolve. Whilst undoubtedly Assad was right, and the wise course was to lie close in this sheltering cove where the odds of their going unperceived were very heavily in their favour, yet the men's judgment was not altogether at fault. If they were to put to sea, they might, by steering an easterly course, pass similarly unperceived, and even should the splash of their oars reach the galleon beyond the headland, yet by the time she had weighed anchor and started in pursuit, they would be well away, straining every ounce of muscle at the oars, whilst the breeze, a heavy factor in his considerations, was become so feeble that they could laugh at pursuit by a vessel that depended upon wind alone. The only danger, then, was the danger of the galleon's cannon, and that danger was none so great, as from experience Sakr el-Bar well knew. Thus was he reluctantly forced to the conclusion that, in the main, the wiser policy was to support Assad, and since he was full confident of the obedience of the men, he consoled himself with the reflection that a moral victory might be in store for him, out of which some surer profit might presently be made. In answer, then, to those who still called upon him, he leapt down the companion and strode along the gangway to the waist-deck to take his stand at the Basha's side. Assad watched his approach with angry misgivings. It was with him a foregone conclusion that, things being as they were, Sakr el-Bar would be ranged against him to obtain complete control of these mutineers, and to call the fullest advantage from the situation. Softly and slowly he unsheathed his scimitar, and Sakr el Bar, seeing this out of the corner of his eye, yet affected not to see, but stood forward to address the men. How now? he thundered wrathfully. What shall this mean? Are ye all deaf, that ye have not heard the commands of your Basha, the exalted of Allah, that ye dare raise your mutinous voices, and say what is your will? Sudden and utter silence followed that exhortation. Assad listened in relieved amazement. 
Rosamond caught her breath in sheer dismay. What could he mean, then? Had he but fooled and duped her? Were his intentions toward her the very opposite to his protestations? She leant against the puprail, straining to catch every syllable of that speech of his in the lingua franca, hoping almost that her indifferent knowledge of it had led her into error on the score of what he had said. She saw him turn with a gesture of angry command upon Laroque, who stood there by the bulwarks, waiting. Back to thy post up yonder, and keep watch upon that vessel's movements, reporting them to us. We stir not hence until such be our Lord Assad's good pleasure. Away with thee! Laroque, without a murmur, threw a leg over the bulwarks and dropped to the oars, whence he clambered ashore as he had been bidden, and not a single voice was raised in protest. Sakar el Bar's dark glance swept the ranks of the corsairs crowding the forecastle. Because this pet of the harine, he said, immensely daring, indicating Marzak by a contemptuous gesture, bleats of danger into the ears of men, are ye all to grow timid and foolish as a herd of sheep? By Allah! What are ye? Are ye the fearless sea-hawks that have flown with me, and struck where the talons of my grappling-hooks were flung, or are ye but scavenging crows? He was answered by an old rover, whom fear had rendered greatly daring. We are trapped here, as Dragut was trapped by Jerba. Thou liest, he answered. Dragget was not trapped, for Dragget found a way out, and against Dragget there was the whole navy of Genoa, whilst against us there is but one galleon. By the Koran, if she shows fight, have we no teeth? Will it be the first galleon whose decks we have overrun? But if ye prefer a coward's counsel, ye sons of shame, consider that once we take the open sea, our discovery will be assured, and Laroque hath told you that she carries twenty guns. I tell you that, if we are to be attacked by her, best be attacked at close quarters. And I tell you that, if we lie close and snug in here, it is long odds that we shall never be attacked at all. That she has no inkling of our presence is proven, since she has cast anchor round the headland. And consider that if we fly from a danger that doth not exist, and in our flight are so fortunate as not to render real that danger and to court it, we abandon a rich argosy that shall bring profit to us all. But... I waste my breath in argument, he ended abruptly. You have heard the commands of your lord, Asad ed-Din, and that should be argument 
enough. No more of this, then. Without so much as waiting to see them disperse from the rail, and return to their lounging attitudes against the fossil, he turned to Assad. It might have been well to hang the dog who spoke of Dragut and Jerba, he said, but it was never in my nature to be harsh with those who follow me. And that was all. Assad, from amazement, had passed quickly to admiration and a sort of contrition, into which presently there crept a poisonous tinge of jealousy to see Sakhar el-Bar prevail, where he himself alone must utterly have failed. This jealousy spread all pervadingly, like an oil stain. If he had come to bear ill-will to Sakhar el-Bar before, that ill-will was turned of a sudden into positive hatred for one in whom he now beheld a usurper of the power and control that should reside in the Basha alone. Assuredly, there was no room for both of them and the Bashalik of Algiers. Therefore, the words of commendation, which had been rising to his lips, froze there, now that Sakhar el-Bar, and he stood face to face. In silence he considered his lieutenant through narrowing evil eyes, whose message none but a fool could have misunderstood. Sakhar el-Bar was not a fool, and he did not misunderstand it for a moment. He felt a tightening at the heart, and ill-will sprang to life within him, responding to the call of that ill-will. Almost he repented him that he had not availed himself of that moment of weakness and mutiny on the part of the crew, to attempt the entire superseding of the Basha. The conciliatory words he had in mind to speak, he now suppressed. To that venomous glance, he opposed his ever-ready mockery. He turned to Biscayne. Withdraw, he curtly bade him, and take that stout sea-warrior with thee, and he indicated Marsak. Biscayne turned to the Basha. Is it thy wish, my lord? he asked. Assad nodded in silence, and motioned him away, together with the cowed Marsak. My lord, said Sakhar el-Bar, when they were alone, Yesterday I made thee a proposal for the healing of this breach between us, and it was refused. But now, had I been the traitor and mutineer thou hast dubbed me, I could have taken full advantage of the humour of my corsairs. Had I done that, it need no longer have been mine to propose or to sue. Instead, it would have been mine to dictate." Since I have given thee such crowning proof of my loyalty, it is my hope, and 
trust that I may be restored to the place I had lost in thy confidence, and that, this being so, thou wilt accede now to that proposal of mine concerning the Frankish woman yonder. It was unfortunate, perhaps, that she should have been standing there, unveiled upon the poop within the range of Assad's glance, for the sight of her it may have been that overcame his momentary hesitation, and stifled the caution which prompted him to exceed. He considered her a moment, and a faint color kindled in his cheek, which anger had made livid. "'It is not for thee, Sakur el he answered at length, "'to make me proposals. To dare it proves thee far from removed indeed from the loyalty thy lips profess. Thou notest my will concerning her. Once hast thou thwarted and defied me, misusing to that end the prophet's holy law. Continue a barrier in my path, and it shall be at thy peril. His voice was raised, and it shook with anger. Not so loud, said Sakar el his eyes gleaming with the response of anger. For should my men overhear these threats of thine, I will not answer for what may follow. I oppose thee at my peril, sayest thou? Be it so, then, he smiled grimly. It is war between us, Asad, since thou hast chosen it. Remember hereafter, when the consequences come to overwhelm thee, that the choice was thine. Thou mutinous, treacherous son of a dog, blazed Asad. Sakar el turned on his heel. Pursue the path of an old man's folly, he said over his shoulder, and see whither it will lead thee. Upon that he strode away, up the gangway to the poop, leaving the basha alone with his anger and some slight fear evoked by that last bold menace. But notwithstanding that he menaced boldly, the heart of Sakar el Bar was surcharged with anxiety. He had conceived a plan, but between the conception and its execution, he realized that much ill might lie. Mistress, he addressed Rosamond as he stepped upon the poop, you are not wise to show yourself so openly. To his amazement she met him with a hostile glance. Not wise, said she, her countenance scornful. You mean that I may see more than was intended for me. What game do you play here, sir, that you tell me one thing, and show me by your actions that you desire? another. 
he did not need to ask her what she meant. At once he perceived how she had misread the scene she had witnessed. "'I'll but remind you,' he said very gravely, "'that once before you did me a wrong by over-hasty judgment, as has been proven to you.' It overthrew some of her confidence. "'But then,' she began, "'I do but ask you to save your judgment for the end. "'If I live, I shall deliver you. "'Meanwhile, I beg that you will keep your cabin. "'It does not help me that you be seen.' She looked at him, a prayer for explanation trembling on her lips. But before the calm command of his tone and glance, she slowly lowered her head and withdrew beyond the curtain. End of Section 27 Read by Dennis Sayers in Modesto, California for LibriVox Fall 2007